Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I uh, have to admit personally, I am excited that we are close to the Christmas season. I love Christmas. I love it more every year. I love Christmas cookies and Christmas music and Christmas movies. And I know some of you are thinking it's all a little bit sentimental and overproduced and commercial. And I'll just respond by saying, isn't it better than the alternative? Right? Isn't it better than everything the rest of the 11 months of the year? There's at least a little window, a little window of light, a little break in some of the discouragement, cynicism, and gloominess. And it's fashionable, at least for a month, uh, to play Christmas music, even in public places. And I think that is great. I love it. I'd rather hear Christmas music at Panera Bread than any other kind of music. So I am an, I am an unashamed uh, Christmas advocate. Um, I, I love it. Uh, and uh, I recognize, at the same time, not everyone has the same experience. Um, some of you are perhaps a little cynical, um, but for some of us, the holidays bring up other difficult experiences. Uh, one of our good friends that many of you know well often tells us that uh, the holidays are the hardest time of the year for him. Um, it's a time where he, he remembers uh, brokenness in family relationships. It's a time where uh, we remember uh, difficult things from the past. And quite frankly, it's getting cold and dark. It's all happening at the same time. I'm so, I'm so glad we can you know, you know, have Christmas lights on because it, we will have uh, the darkest night of the year soon. Uh, Chrissy and I have uh, very good friends, two friends, husband and wife, that are both counselors. We were spending time with them uh, last Friday, and they told us and they invited us to a party they do every year called the Darkest Night of the Year Party. This is what counselors do for fun, apparently. Um, uh, 90 minutes of people sharing things that are difficult and some signs of hope. Then they have dessert and they do it again. Again, uh, a, a wonderful uh, party of, uh, for counselors on the darkest night of the year. The psalm we're looking at today, uh, 43, is a psalm in which the psalmist, the author of the psalm, is wrestling with a deep darkness. A profound darkness that he can't escape on his own. We look at uh, verse 5, we see just a glimpse of the character that is pervading the psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Earlier in the psalm, in verse 2, the psalmist asked, Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. We, we are reading here in this very short psalm, it's only five verses long. The situation in the psalmist describes deep mourning, oppression of the enemy. And speaking to his own soul, he recognizes the state of being cast down and of feeling his soul in turmoil within him. As we approach the darkest night of the year, I recognize that for some of us, this season, as well as many seasons, can be one not only of songs of hope and cheer, but of darkness that sometimes feels difficult to escape. What do we do when we find ourselves in, in a darkness that we can't escape on our own? 
the first thing we want to say is that we, we need to talk to people about it. That's not particularly the point of this psalm. It is a theme of many other parts of the Bible. God does not intend for us to wrestle with discouragement or despair on our own. When we are isolated in the darkness, um, we're far more vulnerable. That is not God's intention. I know in the, the Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class in the morning, you've been, uh, those who are there have been talking about uh, the book of Job, about suffering. And this morning, uh, Joseph told me there was a panel discussion where you were talking in part about the realities of suffering and also about how we can be better comforters to, in, in the midst of suffering to others. That would be the first thing we certainly want to think about. But Psalm 43 uh, offers us some, a little bit of a different perspective. It is, in a sense, I believe, a prayer from the dark. It's words to speak to God, moving outside ourselves to a God who has power, a God who knows us and cares for us. It's, a, it's prayer from a position, however, of confusion, vulnerability, and of being cast down. Three things I'd like to see as we look at this, uh, uh, this short psalm. First of all, we'll see how the psalm, psalmist invites us to honesty about our struggles. He invites us to speak honestly about difficulties that we're facing. And, and, and again, we see there a connection of that need to speak not only to God and to ourselves, but to others. Now, secondly, we'll see uh, this uh, at the heart of the psalm is a prayer, a request for God to act. And we'll look at some of the, the verbs that, we're, that, that, are, that are asking God to do something. Finally, we'll see in this, uh, the psalmist speaking to himself and looking to a future hope, a future deliverance. So first of all, honesty about the situation. As we look at uh, verses 1 and 2, I, I see a couple of ways in which the psalmist is honest. Um, first of all, he's honest about the problem in the situation. He recognizes he needs help. He needs God to help him from, verse 1, ungodly people from deceitful and an unjust man deliver me. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. So the psalmist is recognizing here that he has human enemies that are coming against him. We too in our lives can be facing discouragement and despair because of very practical problems. Uh, sometimes a particular person is trying to hurt us or cause problems against us. Sometimes a, a group of people or uh, less, uh, less clear, vivid forces uh, of, of discouragement can come against us. But the psalmist begins by speaking honestly and recognizing the reality of opposition. Uh, secondly, this, uh, the psalmist speaks truth by speaking about God. When we look at verse 2, uh, there is a, a statement here, a reminder in the midst of this prayer in which the psalmist says, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. That's an important part of truth speaking. Uh, truth speaking about our circumstances means we're recognizing, honest, the reality of challenges. We find that throughout the Bible. The Psalms are full of, of uh, writers that are, that are crying out to God honestly about the situation. But honesty in the midst of our difficulties also must look to the reality of God's presence. Now, at this point, I'm not sure that the psalmist particularly feels that. I'm not sure that the psalmist is, uh, in fact, it seems to be the exact opposite. 
But, but the author has had experience with God and knows things to be true. Whether this is his feeling in the moment or not, the truthfulness of which he speaks describes a reality of a God who is a refuge, a safe place. A refuge is a place we can go when the world is against us. A refuge is a, is, is a harbor to go to when the seas are stormy. And the psalmist speaks truth by recognizing that is who God has revealed himself to be. But the third way in which the psalmist speaks truth is to talk openly about his own pain and his own struggles. I think it's important for us to recognize here that whether it's Psalm 43 or a myriad of other parts of the Bible, the Bible doesn't encourage us to pretend like we don't have problems when we do. Truth speaking about our problems includes speaking about God's presence and character in the midst of it. But look at, look at how this, uh, this psalmist speaks here. This is God's holy word. God has given us this as a prayer, as a song, as a way of crying out to him. And he invites us to speak in brutal honesty about our situation. The second part of verse 2, right after the psalmist affirms that God is a refuge, he speaks about his own troubles. And he cries out to God with brutal honesty, Oh God, why have you rejected me? We have no idea why he feels rejected by God. But the Bible invites us to speak honestly about those situations, even as it's in the very same sentence affirming that God is a refuge. And yet he says, my experience doesn't match that right now. I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. In all of this, we see truth speaking, addressing problems, honestly addressing God's, who God is as he's revealed himself to be, and talking honestly about our feelings. And it's certainly true that sometimes we can get so absorbed in our feelings that we lose sight of everything else. But it's also true that sometimes unwise uh, some of Job's counselors, thinking of the Job story, uh, some, some Christians tell us that we should never speak about our problems. Perhaps you've been told that before. If you speak about how you're suffering, you're just inviting more suffering. And again, it might be a distorted perspective that you're living in where you've lost sight of God and you spend all your time rehearsing your pain. I understand where that could go wrong. But the frame of, uh, of teaching that tells us never to speak honestly about a problem leads us to greater despair and greater isolation. What we see in Psalm 43 is honesty. Honesty about a problem. Honesty about God who is a refuge. And honestly, honesty about the experience of pain. In the midst of that honesty is a request. This request takes the psalmist outside of himself and addresses a God who is present even in the midst of difficulty. Now, there are several uh, words here, several verbs that show what the psalmist wants God, want God's to do, wants God to do. We'll, we'll group them in two parts. The first in verse two is a prayer for God to deal with his enemies. In, in this, the, the psalmist doesn't seem to have a particular plan of how he's going to fix it on his own. Uh, it, it may be something he's led to do or action that he'd be led to take. But the beginning of the prayer is a prayer that he needs God to do something that he can't do. Verse 1, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. 
God invites us in prayer to come to Him and ask Him to do what we can't do on our own. God is a refuge. God is one who uh, works for His people. At the heart of our understanding is co- of covenant is the idea that God identifies with His people and that He is their defender. And so we, we pray both in the Old and the New Testament that God would, uh, that He would fight for us, that He would deliver us from evil, as we would say in the Lord's Prayer, that God would be working around us in ways that we can't, we can't make happen on our own. But there's a second set of uh, requests here. There's three verbs that begin in verse 3 that are much more internal. It's these three words, these three requests that have been so meaningful to me when I found, it, uh, uh, found the darkness setting in and I found it difficult to resolve it on my own. The psalmist asks God to do three things for him And they're really related to this idea of darkness and hope. Look with me at verse 3. It says, send out your light and your truth. When we are in a dark place, uh, we recognize we can't generate hope on our own. And the psalmist here in this prayer is moving beyond himself. He's looking outward and asking for God to break in and do something. Oh God, would you send me your light in your truth. Now, when we're, we're struggling, uh, one of the first things we should do is ask for help, ask for prayer, talk with people. Um, the second thing we should do is uh, open God's word and, and let him speak to us as we wrestle it, uh, wrestle with his words or read a good book or sing a good song. We can take action. But there are times when I feel like the only prayer I can squeeze out is something like this. It's a prayer that God would come in and break in to the reality. Oh God, would you send your light and your truth? And then the next two requests actually get even more humbling if you think about it. Let them lead me. When you're feeling weak and you need God to do something, you can start by saying, God, send light and truth to me. But then the psalmist goes one step more, more and he says, God, not only do I need you to bring light and truth to me, but I need you to come and lead me to a better place. I don't know how to get out of here on my own. And, and, and actually one more step, the, the third request is the most active of all. Look at these words and as we continue with verse 3. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now, in the Old Testament, when the authors write about the Holy Hill, they're speaking of Jerusalem, more particularly the temple. The temple is where God caused his presence to be known in a very special way. That's why so often the, the authors of the Bible say, would say, it's like, oh, if only I could get back to your house. If only I could come into the immediacy of your presence. If I could know you were near. Before Jesus, that was associated with uh, uh, the temple in particular. So he says, oh, would, would, would you send your light and your truth? Would they lead me? Would they bring me to your holy temple? When the darkness of discouragement sets in and the difficulties arise, I think the, the most dependent prayer we can pray is something like this. Essentially, God, you, you have to meet me here. 
And you have to bring me to a better place. I don't know how to go on my own. I need you to lead me. I need you even. The idea is I need you to bring me. I have in my mind a picture that God himself is perhaps carrying us to that better place. Again, I remind you that God himself has given us these words. He's invited us to speak to him this way. He is a God of all power and comfort. And as we express our dependence upon him, he is pleased to show his power in our midst. The third thing we see in this psalm is uh, a hope in the future deliverance. As we look at uh, verses uh, uh, 4 and 5, we notice that the, 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 the verb tense shifts to the future. Then I will It's almost as if the psalmist steps somewhat outside of himself, having recognized the difficulty of the situation, a problem he couldn't fix on his own. The psalm doesn't seem to resolve in the timeline of the psalm. Some psalms do that. As you read it, they'll start off being in despair, and by you get to the end, they'll say, now I'm encouraged. It doesn't seem to happen that way here. It seems as if the the author is still in a dark place as the psalm ends, but beginning to hope. In particular, he he seems to almost step outside of himself, being able to address the situation, and he says, I will go to the altar. He looks forward with hope to a time in which things will be different. It may be that the reality of that hope is not yet fully done, or the experience, the feeling of that hope, it may still feel dark, but having prayed, he speaks to himself with confidence of what God can do. I will go to the altar of God. I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. And then in verse 5, the psalmist again speaks to himself, Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In these closing verses, the psalmist speaks to himself about a hope of a future restoration. He says, God will do it. I don't know how to get out of this place. I don't know how to get to God's holy hill or to his temple, but, but I, I believe God can bring me there. I believe that he will yet again change my circumstances. Sometimes in the, the darkness of despair, the thing we hold on to is the belief, not that we feel better now, but that one day we can. Not that we know how anything is going to be changed, but the belief that, yes, God can work in the world. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul speaks to uh, the Ephesian church in chapter 1, and he encourages them to think of the immeasurable power of God working for those who trust Him and believe in Him. And he compares the power to the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He said, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, according to that power, God is at work in the midst of His people. We look at the power of God and the resurrection of Jesus. We see God who raises the dead. And we have hope to believe He can enter into our circumstances. 
We don't know how. We don't know when. We don't have the strength, perhaps, to do it ourselves. But God can send light and truth. He can lead us. He can bring us. He can take us to a new place. God is able, through His church, through His Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He is able to take us, to lead us, to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. Christians think of this phrase, the altar of God. They're reminded that it's on the altar where the sacrifices were brought. That the communion that any, any saint in the Old Testament had with God in the temple of God was based on the sacrifices of God, the altar of God. Our sin was atoned for. Where offerings of thanksgiving were offered The confidence we have in God's commitment to work for us is found most clearly in Jesus. In Jesus, we have a a reminder of God's commitment for his people. He who has not spared his son, but gave him for us, will he not also give us all things? God who is committed to us in Christ, God who has power in the resurrection, is able to bring light and truth into our darkness. We have hope. Things will change. The future hope of the Christian is certainly meant to see God working in the midst of our life. We're not alone. We're in our Father's world and He is working. But the full-scale hope of the Christian life looks beyond anything in our present experience. It looks to a day in which all things will be made new. It looks to a day in which God will prepare for us an extravagant feast in His new house of Zion, not the temple in Israel, not not the, uh, uh, the building in this particular location, but Mount Zion with Jesus, the true temple of God who will return who will draw all his people to himself, who in the resurrection of the dead will be present with us, wiping away every tear, bringing, uh, bringing hope where there had been darkness. So I spent time trying to think briefly about this message. I, I was uh, grasping after some sort of uh, concluding story. I don't have any. But as I was thinking about it, sitting in the back and reflecting on on, uh, this time together, I realized we actually have something far better. Because on these Sundays, once a month, we close uh, this uh, this time together with a meal. It's the meal of the Lord Jesus Christ, the supper that he ate with his disciples. And when we eat this meal, we look back in remembrance on Jesus who gave himself for us. Jesus who went so fully and completely into the darkness of sin and hell that he could cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Having gone into darkness and sin on our behalf, Jesus was raised from the dead. He said to his disciples that the meal that he ate, that Passover meal, he would again one day eat with them in the kingdom of God. 
It may refer in part to meals Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection. But the full scope of the Bible points us to a great last day feast. A meal in which Jesus will come. The book of Revelation calls it the wedding feast of the Lamb. Friends, if you can put your faith in Jesus and trust Him, if you've joined yourself to His body and you're a member of a, of a gospel-preaching church, then we ask you to come and eat with us this meal, this Lord's Supper. It is a remembrance of the past. It is a token of God's presence with us now. And it is a, a foretaste of our future. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sampling of the meal that God will give. And as we take this by faith, believing that God is present among His people in the power of His Spirit, know that you are not alone. You're here with friends who have with you cried out to God for His mercy. Whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not, whether it it strikes you as being vivid and real, God is present here with us. You're not alone. Close in prayer.